0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning, everyone. It's always fun to be together in these large one-service gatherings. And we actually thought today that we would be not only having our service and celebrating uh, the beginning of the fall, the beginning of the ministry season, but we thought the playground would be open. You probably saw when you came in. A lot of progress has been made. The only problem is nothing is actually bolted into the ground. So we could have a playground day, but we'd probably have a hospital day as well. So we opted (laughs) not to do that. But we're actually planning a month from now, the first weekend of October, we're going to have another one-service gathering, and that will be a day where we celebrate and have fun and kind of open the playground uh, officially on that day. So we're looking forward to that. The opening words of the book of Deuteronomy kind of one of those ones back in the Old Testament, they say this. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. And in terms of the context of what is going on here, 40 years prior, the nation of Israel was supposed to have entered into the promised land right after they came out of their slavery in Egypt. So after the Exodus, they were to cross the desert, and enter the promised land, but they lacked faith in God, so here they have wandered in this desert for 40 years. And finally, they're on the eastern edge of the promised land, and they're about to enter into it, but before the journey continues, Moses, who for various reasons will not be going with them, addresses the people of God one more time, and he does this to remind them, challenge them, warn them, and inspire them. So with that, if you would stand for the scripture reading today, it's from Deuteronomy 4. It's an absolutely beautiful passage and one that I find rather inspiring. I'm going to be reading verses 32 through 40 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Again, Moses is speaking to this large group of people and he says, Ask now about the former days long before your time from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. From heaven, He made you hear His voice to discipline you. On earth, He showed you His great fire. And you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. This is the word of the Lord. maybe may be seated. It's a beautiful passage of scripture that reinforces an important theme that is found throughout the Bible, an important theme for the people of God that is thread it all through the Bible and down through history. And the theme is, remember the past as you step into the future. Moses, in these words, puts it this way. Has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. And it's obvious Moses is trying to inspire the people to step across the Jordan River with unshakable confidence in God. They've seen what he has done in the past. And if they follow him, he will be faithful and do it again. So, every now and then, in the flow of a local church like Oak Hills, it is wise, I think, to pause and kind of reset and remember the good that God has done in our midst before we go plunging into the future. And for several months now, I have wanted to take a Sunday. To reflect on the good that God is up to in our midst. And consider as well where, at least as I sense it, where God seems to be stirring in our midst. So that's what I'm going to do today. I want to talk about the good God has been doing and where I and perhaps some others sense him stirring as we step into the future. Now just to clarify in case you're wondering, I am not Moses, obviously. And I want to say this, Oak Hills is not the world's biggest or best church. What happens in our little Oak Hills universe is not the center of God's activity in this world. His kingdom, obviously, is much bigger than our church. That said, and despite what many seem to think these days, local church matters. The people of God gathering together in the various ways we gather and doing life together in the various ways we do life together matters. And God remains at work through this living institution he called the church and established 2,000 years ago. But let's go back a bit further. In Genesis chapter 12, near the beginning of the Bible, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And through that nation, Israel, the whole world would see who God is and what God desires. And in that passage, it says the whole world will be blessed through this people that God is going to form. So God's plan from the beginning was to form a people, Israel to be a new kind of community that provided the rest of the world with a living and breathing example of what life can be when it is lived with God and for God and to God. And then in the New Testament, Jesus continues this idea of a people formed and gathered for him and by him. And he established his church to carry out this same mission, to be a new community of people who demonstrate to the world who God is and what life can be when it is lived with God and for God and to God. And despite what many Christians and non-Christians believe these days, Jesus has not abandoned his church. He's not given up. On the church project. And I say that fully aware that the Christian church has all sorts of problems and failings and sins. You may not realize, but over the past seven years, many have watched the church, and here I mean the American church, many have watched the church navigate a political firestorm and also deal with all sorts of racial tensions and also process a pandemic. And many have watched this, Christian and not, and have concluded the church is a hopeless cause because of how it has bumbled and stumbled its way through those things I just mentioned, and they no longer want anything to do with it. And I want to say this just as plainly as I can. Here at Oak Hills, in this local church, no theory, no big, broad, big C church that we don't know anything about because it's kind of ethereal and out there. So here in this local church called Oak Hills, we have all sorts of problems and failings and challenges, and we have made all sorts of mistakes, not just in the last seven years, but since Oak Hills began. So there is plenty to point to and shake our heads at right here at Oak Hills. But since the church, the big seed church, since it all began 2,000 years ago, and even before that, in the nation of Israel, the people of God have always had all sorts of problems and failings. Since its inception, the Christian church has stumbled and bumbled and fumbled its way forward and then backward, and then forward again. But I want to say it again. Jesus is not in a frantic panic over his church today. I believe that the American evangelical church needs reform and renewal in the deepest of ways. But, I'll just use Moses' words, he is God and there is no other. And he's not frantically panicking right now. And as one expression of Jesus's church, our job as Oak Hills is to be faithful to him and continue to grow as a new community of his people that proclaims the good news of his kingdom through our life together as a community. So let's talk a bit about the good God is doing. And I Could go on for a long time here, but you can probably already smell the food. I know I can, and I'm already getting bored with myself, so I'm going to hurry this along so we can get to that, because that's one of the reasons we're here. The good God is doing. One of the good things that I see God doing is helping us continue to grow as a community of difference, and I don't mean E-N-C-E difference. I mean E-N-T-S difference. See, we are not all classic suburbanites at Oak Hills. We are not all married with 2.3 children. We're not all old. <laughs> We're not all white. And we don't all vote the same way. And I say thank God to all those things and many others. For the past several years, we have worked Intentionally worked to be a community that shares a love for and pursuit of Jesus Christ, but also a community in the New Testament language where Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, able and less able, old and young, Democrat and Republican, single and married and divorced, black and white. And Hispanic and Asian learn to love one another and journey with one another and learn to disagree sometimes passionately while still loving Jesus, pursuing him together and feasting at his table together. And God is working in this, at least from my perspective. And we're learning what this looks like and how to do it. Unity without uniformity the examples are all over the place just the composition of this room has changed over the last several years every week literally every single week I see people who vote very very differently or they live in very different neighborhoods one to the other they have very different income levels and jobs and careers And every single week, and again, this just being one expression of what it means to be a local church, every single week I see people all across these spectrums moving toward each other and praying for each other and worshiping next to each other and ministering to each other. And they're doing this because of a conviction that Jesus Christ is king And because of a conviction, in all of our differences, we are, in fact, a family. See, with all the fractures in our society and the ever-present anger and divisiveness that I'm sure you're aware of, people these days are increasingly wanting to huddle with those who agree with them and are similar to them. As it is often said, they want to be with their people. And this has swept right into the church. I want to worship with people who hate the president as much as I do. You got to think about that a little bit, but we won't go in. I want to celebrate communion with those who think like I do and believe everything I believe. Nice idea, just not a biblical one. See, the church, since its beginning, has been a new community of those who have little to nothing in common, except their love for Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, here, within the people of God, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all and is in all. In other words, there's no reason for this group of people to gather. They have nothing in common that would say, Oh, you're barbarian, me too. Let's huddle up. There's no reason to gather. In fact, there's many reasons to avoid gathering. But they come together. See, in this kind of community, as the Holy Spirit cultivates a unity, That pulls all different kinds of people into one local body, the good news is proclaimed. Let me say it this way authentic Christian unity in a fractured society is missional because it demonstrates the gospel. Authentic Christian unity is missional because it proclaims the good news of the kingdom to a broken and tribalized world. So I say it this way, the greater our differences, the more God's spirit can cultivate an authentic and irresistible unity between us and this proclaims the kingdom to a fractured world. And mind you, and let me repeat myself, we don't always agree on everything. We have arguments about theological things we disagree on. And sometimes, or let me say this, it's not true that everybody's right on what theology they hold. That is not true. But there is a way to be together in a kind of authentic and irresistible unity where we recognize those differences, argue about those differences, but we hang together as a faith community and doing so proclaims the kingdom to a fractured world. And this is not easy to do. Believe me, it's much easier to huddle with my people. But God is doing something good among us in this realm of difference. Another place I see him doing some really good things is in the growing number of leaders who are pastoring and carrying the church. One of the strengths of Oak Hills is the quality and quantity of unpaid pastors and leaders in our congregation. Let me be clear. I'm not talking at all about paid staff people. I'm talking about people like you with jobs and careers and families and challenges and obligations who are leaders in this church. You're pastoring other people, investing in their lives, getting into the mess of their stories and literally carrying the ministry of the church in your hearts and on your shoulders. And there is a growing number of people who fit this description. I see a number of unpaid pastors and leaders who are spiritually influencing others through our Journey program that Amber talked about a moment ago. If you want to know how does Oak Hills help people transform and grow in Christ, one of the answers is through our Journey program. So right after this, before lunch, there's this informational gathering out in the courtyard. If that grabs you, then you should go to that. But I see unpaid pastors and leaders influencing others through journey. I see it in our youth and children ministries. Unpaid pastors and leaders investing time and energy to be with others and pour themselves out for their sake. I see it on our elder board, on our administrative council. I see it on the spiritual formation team, Colleen has formed. I see it on the new mission team, Dave Holcomb is forming. I see it on our hospitality teams. I see it on our facilities and operation team. I see it on our worship and impact teams and on I could go. See, church changes. It changes when you start to see yourself as called by God to influence others for his sake. This whole thing called church will change, and it will change dramatically. Like you will feel the change when you start to see yourself as called by God to influence others for his sake. And at least from my perspective, that's happening more and more. Another good area, good thing God is doing has to do with our finances. The other day I was watching a YouTube video of two televangelists who were sitting at a nice kitchen table and they were discussing why they needed their 30 plus million dollar private planes in order to do their ministry. Now you may be wondering, why is Mike watching this? (laughs) That's the 30 million dollar (laughs) question. So I'm watching this thing, and they're going back and forth. Well, we need it for this reason and that reason. One guy's, I believe, is $50 million. And the image in my head I could not shake was that yellow emoji dude with the green vomit coming out of his mouth. You know what I know. Money is a touchy subject. It makes us all squirm. But just to put your mind at ease, I've already got my $30 million private plane. So that's not what we're going to talk about. Obviously, I'm kidding. I want to step into this just as humbly as I can. This is raw, this topic is icky, I get it. But in terms of a good that God is doing at Oak Hills, he's doing something good in our finances. See, the money to do the ministry of our church, pay the staff, pay the utility bills, fix the roof, renovate the playground, comes 100% from the people who call Oak Hills their home. And so we unapologetically ask any and all leaders in our church, paid and unpaid, to give sacrificially to the ministry. And we invite and unapologetically ask any and all who call Oak Hills their home to do exactly the same thing. And one of the goods God is doing is that our giving has been really healthy lately. Regular general fund giving has held up well through the summer, which it sometimes doesn't, and during the focus on debt we've had over the past several years. Speaking of debt, it's rapidly dying. If you look at the slide up there, the current loan we have left is 118,000 roughly. We're paying about whatever the number is, 9,000 something a month in our mortgage payment, of which about 8,900 of it is going to principal, directly to principal. And our loan balance on on December 31st of this year is going to be in the neighborhood of (laughs) $91,000. So if you've been around here, you know that the last few years, and this year in particular, we are taking on the challenge of eradicating that $91,000 by the end of this year. And as you can see, that's over and above giving. And we're hoping that through our special year-end offering that we'll be able to pay that $91,000 off and never had this topic Never have this subject talked about again. When I was a younger pastor, I was taught that giving is a key, maybe the most important key uh, sign of a healthy church. And I've come to think of it as an important sign, but not the most important. And yet God is doing good things in our midst through the financial sacrifices many are making here at Oak Hill. So that's a little bit about the good that is happening. Let me talk for a bit about where God is stirring. And the caveat to all this is: Mike, is this just you sitting around somewhere watching two guys talk about $30 million planes and these things pop in your head? And are you gonna dump them on us? No. But I don't want to pretend that this is, you know, 30 of us sitting around for the last three years discerning and vetting, and here's what comes out. So this is partly. What, where I sense God is stirring, what I sense he's up to, where I see kind of the water moving, if you will. And to kind of get into this, I'm struck by Moses' words in this passage that I read a moment ago, verses 35 and then 39. Where he says, You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land and the Lord your God that the Lord your God gives you for all time. These words from Deuteronomy 4 provide guidance for us as a church as we think about the short- and long-term future that is stretched out in front of us. The fall time of year is always a time when life restarts and when church ministry stuff restarts. It's really the beginning of the ministry year. And over the short term of this next year or two, these words from Deuteronomy provide wonderful wisdom and guidance. The Lord is God, and there is no other. So you're wondering what's stirring in the short term and the long term? You want to know what I think is stirring? It can be summarized in this way. The Lord is God, and there is no other, and we as a church want to double down and triple down on that reality. Ever since about 2018, for various reasons, I'm not going to go into here. Actually, I'm going to go into. For various reasons ever since about 2018, I've sensed that we as a church are in a crucial season in terms of our long-term future. So short-term, the Lord is God and there is no other, double and triple down on it. But I've sensed since about 2018, we as a church are in a crucial season in terms of our longer-term future. And I've sensed that for several reasons. I'm going to just rattle some of them off. Our culture is increasingly disinterested in Christianity and in church, meaning our culture, uh, the society. So both church and Christianity are being pushed further and further to the margins of our society, and that obviously has long-term implications for us as a church. Some of those implications are really good, and some of them are challenging. Another reason we're in a crucial longer-term season is because we have a handful of long-time older staff here at the church. And over the next several years, logic says those staff will be retiring or transitioning to other jobs. That creates a new season that we have to be thinking about. Another reason why I think this is a crucial longer-term season is because soon we're going to be a church without debt. And I've been here almost 29 years. We've never not had debt. So that will provide new possibilities and opportunities for ministry. Another reason that may or may not surprise you is because a growing number of professing Christians are divorcing themselves from life in a local church and choosing instead to do faith on their own or with their preferred tribe with the people who think like they do and are mad about what they're mad about, and etc. And that has implications for us. One more reason, and I hope I'm wrong about this, and I don't want to make anybody angry with this, but I couldn't be authentic about the reasons why the longer term is important if I didn't touch on this. See, it seems to me a growing number of Christians have been seduced by the idol of politics. <laughs> whether to the right or to the left. Maybe we could put it this way. It seems to me an increasing number of Christians allow their politics to shape their faith more than their faith shapes their politics. And Jesus is the mascot of their preferred party. Both sides, when we get going in this, if there's Christian things happening, they claim Jesus as their mascot. It's as though the underlying belief that has crept in is that if we get the right person in the White House and the right group controlling the Congress, then all will finally be well. And I want to say, certainly politics matters. We can't separate faith and politics because faith encompasses every aspect of life, including politics. But in my opinion, And I hope I'm wrong. There's a lot of misplaced devotion and hope invested in our political passion. And while everyone is quick to claim Jesus as the reason behind their political loyalty, he appears to me to be more of a mascot than a master and more of a trinket than a king. And that has implications for the church over the longer term. So with all of that, where God is stirring, again, my perspective, at Oak Hills. And in general, same as before, where I think God is stirring is he's stirring in us to double and triple down on the reality that the Lord is God, and besides him, there is no other. So in particular, where do I sense him stirring? A handful of things. One is in the realm of humility. I've talked about this many, many times, I'm not gonna say much about it, but I have come to believe that the mark of a growing person and the mark of a growing Christian church is an epidemic of humility. One of the things that struck me recently is I was thinking about some of the influential leaders in our church, unpaid influential leaders, and I kinda got stopped in my tracks because I thought to myself, What's the distinguishing characteristic of these influential leaders? And the word that came to mind instantly was, they have a raw and real and obvious humility. And as long as I am in the role that I'm in, this idea, this character quality, this aspect of what it means to be a Christ follower and to be a church, this humble posture, I'd like to believe is going to be forward. Because it's something that I believe is indicative of of a life that is growing in Christ and being led by the Spirit. Another place where I see God stirring is in the realm of prayer. Makes sense. If he's stirring in the realm of humility, it would make sense that he's stirring and compelling us. And when I say us, I mean us. To a more vibrant and devoted life of prayer together. One of the things that has happened on our elder board over the last year and a half is this whole matter of what does it mean for elders to be praying together, praying for the church, praying for one another, and doing the work of prayer. And tremendous steps have been taken within the context of our elder board to up the ante in terms of our life of prayer together. The communal prayer of our church, that is, us praying together, to make his presence known among us and through us. I sense that this is an area where God is stirring and wants to deepen us and stretch us and grow us. We have a a twice-a-month community prayer time on Thursdays, from 6.30 to 7.30, the second and fourth Thursday of the month. The entire church is invited to show up to that as we learn how to pray together. This thing that happens every week before we gather for worship Right down here, a group of people are praying. Every time you walk into the room on a Sunday morning and you see this happening, the invitation is open to you to come forward and participate in this. We want to grow as a uh, praying church. Another area where I sense God doing something and stirring is in this issue or in this realm of spiritual formation in the details of our lives. See, our theology of the gospel at Oak Hills, the good news as we understand it at this church, has something to say about forgiveness of sins and something to say about life after death, but it also has a whole bunch to say about life before death and about the possibility of authentic and real transformation in the details of our lives where the Holy Spirit works in our inner world through his word, through one another, through various processes and experiences, through hardship and suffering, to form the character of Jesus in us. And we take this seriously around here. Christ formed in us, as Paul says in Galatians 4.19. And this theology of the gospel, because this is what the gospel is for us here, this theology of the gospel will always mean an up-close and personal encounter with the raw and broken and hard stuff of the soul and of relationships and of sin and addiction and challenges. We're always going to be face-to-face with that, in ourselves and with others. Our theology of the gospel will always mean walking into these things and through these things with one another. So it is ridiculously and unavoidably messy. Our theology of the gospel is not that we proclaim good news and then each of us just sort of pulls it over our head and wears it as a shirt. Our theology of the gospel is that this good news wants to work its way into the deep parts of our being and actually change the way we are, change the way we respond, change the way that we react when people bother us, change the sting of the wounds that lay deep within our soul. We believe this gospel of Jesus wants to penetrate way down into that stuff and change us with regard to the things that we're addicted to. Etc., and so on. And that is a messy adventure. So, this theology of the gospel will always mean walking into these things and through these things with one another. And that's a messy adventure and at times unsettling and hard. But this is who we are as a church. This is what we're about as a church. And to be an authentic and healthy church that offers genuine hope and healing, we believe. We have to get into each other's messes with no shame, no hiding, no religious pretending, and absolutely no culture of judgment. That's a first, I think. I don't think that's ever happened. Instead of all that nonsense, a shared pursuit of a gracious and loving God as we journey through the mess, our mess, your mess, together. So we become a welcoming church. Not to just say, come one, come all, doesn't matter where you're at, everybody stays put where you're at and we're all one big happy family. Not that. But a welcoming church that says, we want to experience God together in authentic ways and together be reshaped and reformed and transformed by his Holy Spirit. And if you're into that, come join us. I sense God stirring in us to double and triple down on this. I sense God stirring in us to think creatively and imaginatively about ministry beyond these walls. Mission is our word for it. You'll see it on the wall. On the left, when you leave the building, mission in the neighborhood, mission in the schools, mission in the apartments where we live, mission in the places where we work. If the world is as out of control as it appears to be, then the church needs to be agile and mobile and willing to engage this broken world on its turf, offering something real and hopeful, namely the grace and goodness and presence of Jesus Christ. We have to keep learning how to do this in our everyday lives. Let me say it this way. Our vocation as followers of Jesus Christ and as his salt and light in this world should be more important than our occupation or career. And that goes for every last one of us. Our vocation, called by God, to be salt and light, his hands, his feet, in this broken world, is more important to us than our occupation or career or advancement. See, we as a local church need to be on the front lines, helping people discover the life and hope that only Jesus gives. And we need to find creative, imaginative, and as yet untried experiments to bring ministry beyond these walls and help people find God. And one other area where I sense God is stirring is with regard to our young people. And there's just so much to be said about this, but the older I get, the longer I've been here, the more my heart breaks and longs to know how can we as a church make room and care for and empower and equip young people to live out the reality of the kingdom in this chaotic and insane world? How do we help young people sift and sort the steady bombardment of ideas, ideologies, opinions, and identities rushing at them every day and discover the reality of God's good kingdom in this chaos? What is too much to invest in that? What would it look like for Oak Hills to seriously invest in children, middle and high schoolers, college students, and young families so they can navigate the chaos with the kingdom perspective? And I don't mean so we can come up with a program and jam it down their throat. I mean so that they can navigate, they can navigate all this chaos with a clear, distinct, compelling, vibrant, vibrant, motivating, inspirational kingdom perspective as their rudder through the chaos. And I'll just leave it at this. We have to do this. We have to find ways, creative ways. We have to pray and ask God to give us the resources and the creativity so we can help young people lead, follow, navigate this insanity with a kingdom perspective. The Lord is God and there is no other. This is as true today as it was when Moses stood in front of the people. They're on the western shore of the Jordan River and they're heading into the promised land. It's as true today as it was then. The Lord is God and there is no other. This is the message of Jesus' church. Not a message to scream at those who don't agree. Not a message to berate those who don't agree. And not a message to wield over people don't agree, but a message to demonstrate and proclaim. And here's the key. Demonstrate and proclaim through our life together as a congregation. Because the world is hurting. You know that. People are hurting. You know that. You may not know. There are people around you right here today who are hurting. And this is the hope and the healing we offer.